Welcome to episode 272 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I know Christmas has just passed on the calendar, but we're going to the inn on this episode. Infallibility <laughs> and inerrancy. <laughs> that was good. That was a good one. I, I'm, I'm not even sure where to go from there. Normally, we do like a little like a little bit where we talk about how it feels like I just saw you yesterday, and then it's like, I did just see you yesterday, but I don't think we need to do that this year. No, but that is a little inside baseball because depending on when a listener has joined us, they might not realize, some don't, that we are rarely in the same place when we record, the same physical place. It's true. It's true. Spiritually, we're we're always in the same place when we record. Amen. That's what I'm saying. Yes. But we are going to talk about infallibility and inerrancy and the scriptures, all that good stuff coming in just a little bit. But of course, before we get there, it is a new year. And I think we've decided on this episode, we're just going to kind of keep it in the affirmation realm. We're just going to keep it positive yes. to start off. So yes. kick us off in this brand new year of 2022. So I'm affirming uh, something that I've not read, but I'm 100% confident that it's going to be phenomenal. Uh, it's a new book by the uh, by our friend of the show, Adonis Vidu. Uh, he has most recently, well, I suppose not most recently, previous to this book, his most recent publication was The Same God Who Works All Things, which is the only known treatment of uh, inseparable operations in full book length that uh, anyone that I know had. Uh, knows of. And he just published another new book called The Divine Missions, An Introduction. So this one is published by Whip and Stock. Uh, you can get it on Amazon or directly from their page. Uh, and it is going to, it's sort of focusing specifically on the missions itself, obviously, since that's the title of the book. But that was an area that I know, you know, when, when, an author writes a book, a lot of times they have a chapter or a couple chapters that they write that just don't fit or they, they have to cut because their word length or the, you know their contract doesn't allow them to have that much. Um, so this is, this is a continuation of that same work that he was uh, engaged in in that book. So the divine missions obviously are very wrapped up in this concept of inseparable operations. So check it out. Uh, you can pick it up. It's only $19 right now on Amazon. Uh, which Ooh. is a good price. And for at least one lucky person, the price will be zero because we're going to go ahead and give away a copy of this book <laughs> this month. So if you go to our website and go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest or reformbrotherhood.com slash 272, you'll find one of those little modules where you can visit our webpage or visit our podcast page or whatever and get a couple entries. And I got to be honest, uh, there haven't been too many people entering these contests. So you have a pretty good chance of winning if you go and you do that. Uh, and we, you know, we use that as a way to sort of get the word out. We would love it if you share this episode, uh, you know, but uh, really, if you want to win the contest, you kind of have to share this episode. So <laughs> go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest, reformbrotherhood.com slash 272, and you can enter to win. And we will draw uh, that entry at the end of January, and we'll notify the winner by email and get that book shipped right out. Right on. Is it me or do we have just the absolute best ways of going into a promotion? Because <laughs> you got me when you're like, for at least one listener, it'll the price will be zero. Zero. Zero <laughs> that, dollars. That's also how zero we, pounds. 
that's how we announce that we're going to have a book giveaway. We just, we, we don't want to come at it directly. That doesn't seem quite fun enough. We're always going to come at it from the side or sneak yeah. attack you from the rear True and story. say, oh, look, zero dollars. That's a book giveaway. Yeah. Like a reformed ninja, right? Just, you're never going to yep. see it come in. We're just going to jump in there with this, the sly transition. Free books. So yeah, I hope people will go and check that out because you're right. I don't know what's up, but we're giving away great stuff yeah. and we want to get this in people's hands. So go follow Tony's advice. Go check it out, everybody. Yes. What are you affirming today, Jesse? I'm also going to stick on the book track. So I'm actually, though, going to affirm with a particular translation. Uh, translation is not the right word. Particular arrangement of a classic work in English literature. And that is every year I try to revisit some parts of The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Oh, I don't always get through all of it, but I don't know if you're... Here's the thing. If you haven't read it, we've said it before, you ought to read it. And I know that for many people, including myself sometimes, the Middle English stuff is a little bit too much. It just feels yeah. like it's beating you down. You can't get there. It seems like a slog. So I'm affirming with a particular version. This one is labeled... Well, actually, the, the tagline is translated from the original 17th century text and further edited and annotated by... L. Edward Hazelbaker. And I think that uh, Mr. L. Edward Hazelbaker does a great job of not only his annotation, but he has further notes in there. The English, though, super readable, but it's really, really precise and has great fidelity to the original. In fact, it's like a lovely way to pick up both if you want and just read a little bit and then go back to the Middle English stuff and you'll be like, this totally makes sense now. So I just think he makes it totally approachable. It's a pretty thick volume actually, because there's lots of great notes in here. It's, it's basically like, you know how, when we look at the confessions of the creeds, we have all this one for proof texting right there. John Bunyan was like a proof text master. He yeah. also quoted a lot from the scriptures without actually directly quoting, like putting quotation marks in his original writing. This just allows you to get that full sense of connection to the scriptures. Something that we're going to talk about today, but I just love this volume. I think it's super approachable and you can pick it up. And for me, like, I love going back to, you know me, I love when program hangs out with interpreter, like interpreter's house is like amazing. So many amazing <laughs> imagery and scenes. And then my second favorite part is when Pilgrim is ascending the mountain and the law runs by and beats the heck out of him. <laughs> He's like, Oh, you stole my thunder. That? I was going to say that. I love that part. <laughs> I love that so much. And I, again, I think Hazel Baker just does a really, really fantastic job. So maybe this is your year, loved one. If you've thought, man, I would like to read Pilgrim's Progress or Christiana's Progress. Like that's the second part that was written later. Yeah. It's all in this book. It's all totally approachable. This is like prime book club material, but it's also, I use it oftentimes for like just devotional compliments to the scriptures. It's lovely. So go grab a copy of that. Yeah. Uh, another just quick tag on to that. Uh, theology simpler pure. Blah, 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 blah. That phrase is simply profound. Theology simply profound, which is a podcast uh, put together by the Reform Forum. Uh, they just did a extensive series walking through not only the Pilgrim's Progress, uh, but the second part of the Pilgrim's Progress, which is Pilgrim slash Christian's wife and children, right. their progress towards salvation. Uh, they did a good job. I didn't listen to all of them, but uh, they did a good job unpacking a lot of the themes and kind of exploring the the different uh, the different theology presented and different imagery that's given there. I do. I love the uh, scene in Interpreter's House. I just think it's so clever it's and creative. It just unfolds everything. It's yeah. It's it's great. 
It's amazing. And it's like super, of course, it's super vivid. That's how Bunyan wrote. And if you right. read his apology, which is really the preface he puts in metered rhyme, why he wrote the book, his argument for it. It's really fascinating because I think like he's hitting on the stuff that you find other evangelistic preachers trying to appropriate, right. but use in a less effective way. So he he's unapologetic about this use of allegory and this use of, he talks about his words and images being a burr basically in your sock or on your foot. And I think that's true. So when I think of my, a lot of these theological concepts, even in a technical sense, I'm often drawn back to something that I read in this book. So there's a reason why, yeah. with the exception of maybe, I don't know, this past century, there's a reason why it is like the most, the second most purchased and sought after book besides yeah. the scriptures. Yeah. So anybody that can bring it into the modern language and just remove that hurdle that we have, which again, the middle stuff is like, it's beautiful. Like it is like King James style language, but it's a little bit more intense than that. Some people yeah. love that and that's cool. But if you're like, man, just how about you just tell me what <laughs> Pilgrim is doing, then yeah. this is really the right kind of text. So yeah, go check out L Edward Hazelbaker. You can find it anywhere. Great books are sold or on Amazon. That's I mean, a heck of a name. Sold on Amazon. That is a, that is a heck of a name. L Edward Hazelbaker. Yeah. He must be friends with like Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> like if you have a name like that, you're destined to cucumber bottom. Yeah. If, if you have a name like that, you're destined to do something great in literature or in it's translation. True. You know, it's that's like, you can't get away from that. This dude definitely has elbow patches, right? Like at least several blazers with <laughs> leather elbow patches for sure. You know, you can just put leather patches on your elbows if you want, Jesse. There's not like a, there's not like a, a test to no, be able there's to rules. do that. There's you can rules. just do it. No, you, there's there's rules. If you if you walk into a public place with that on, people will tell you. So, like it. some dude with a tweed jacket and a pipe will pop out from behind a shrub and be like, <laughs> "You are not authorized exactly. to do that." Exactly. I said, "Good day, sir." Yeah. <laughs> do you he, bite your thumb at me? <laughs> we'll dig deep on that one. There are rules in our society. It's true. Speaking <laughs> of rules, speaking of rules, I actually. I'm just going to totally jettison that segue because I want to go a different direction <laughs> and, and we do not edit these before we get to that beautiful segue. Keep everybody in suspense for a minute longer. Uh, I want to thank everybody as we turn the calendar, those who have so generously supported the podcast in so many different ways, both with sending voicemails or notes of encouragement or interacting with us on Facebook or sharing episodes or even giving some of their financial resources to support all of the costs that we have, which is what keeps this whole thing free for everybody else. Thank you so much. And I especially want to give a little shout out to Brother Brandon, who is our newest contributor on Patreon. Brandon, thanks so much for joining us in this thing and making sure that it will always be free and you'll never hear a weird ad for Dollar Shave Club or Zip Recruiter. I don't know. Not going to find it here. So yeah, I mean, unless you... we like it, we might we might advertise <laughs> for something. True. That's true. <laughs> I mean, the Dollar Shave Club is a total ripoff, but because it's way more than a dollar. This is the anti ad. Yes. I mean, we both have purple mattresses that we like, so I don't know why we're not getting sponsored by uh, them. That's true. See, yeah, you're only going to find what we believe in. But <laughs> what we especially believe in is all of our lovely brothers and sisters who support us. So, Brother Brandon, thanks so much. And if anybody else is interested in joining Brandon and others that give to meet the needs that are real costs of the podcast, we're so thankful. You can just head on over to reformbrotherhood.com and there will be a nice little button in the middle that says, 
join the brotherhood. And there's a bunch of different things you can do. And not all of them are financial. You can jump into the Facebook group or send a voicemail or again, share an episode, get into a book club with somebody, have some great discussions about theology, but just come along with us for the ride. And we appreciate all those that are doing it in various ways. True story. I, I appreciate every single donor, every single person who gives, because it is it is a, a blessing to us. I mean, I think we would make the podcast anyway, and we would figure it out. But to not have to stress out about where the you know where the money is going to come from to pay for hosting fees or right on website fees or whatever it might be is is a real blessing. Uh, and it's something that you know we we make this podcast because we believe that God edifies the saints through this podcast. And so when people give of their abundance to help us do that, they really are partnering in, uh, in that activity that God is. We're very careful not to call it a ministry. Uh, there are other podcasts that use that word, and I'm fine with that. But I, I'm very careful not to call it a ministry because that's a specific word. But in this, this endeavor that God has placed before us, the people who are financially supporting the show, I mean, that goes from everything to re- replacing a microphone at breaks to right. – you know, paying hosting fees to purchasing books to give away so people can get good theology to, you know, paying for uh, website redesigns, things like that. So there's really a lot that we try to do and we try to make those funds go as far as they possibly can. Uh, but we really appreciate when people are partnering with us. This just, just got like really like NPR pledge drive. It was great. Yeah, you just yeah, launched right I, into I, I feel like I'm about to be like, and I'll give you a tote bag if you see, no, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> well, is this is this a good time to announce that in the new year, we decided that we're going to officially announce the praise pit level of donation, which is $1 million. <laughs> yeah. If you, you would like to join the praise pit club, all you have to do is go to patreon.com backslash reform brotherhood. You just drop in one and six zeros. <laughs> and you are officially in the praise pit. Yeah, and I'll tell you this: if you if you contribute at the praise pit level, I will arrange for you to have a one on one dance party with Chris Tomlin on God's Great Dance Floor. <laughs> there, there's so much mileage out of that, man. We're just gonna keep on milking that insanity forever. It doesn't stop, and we should probably say by way of just total fair disclosure, just in case it wasn't clear. Totally joking, but I'm not joking. If you want to give us a million dollars, I'll make sure you get to dance with Chris Tomlin. (laughs) I feel like if you give us a million dollars, we can make that happen. I would rather, though, it be all of the former members of DC Talk, which I think you have a strong connection to. Yeah, but one of them is deconstructed now, so I don't know. I don't think he'd be into that. Well, we'll just swap in Chris Tomlin. That's true. It's like it's the Voltron of of contemporary Christian music at this point. (laughs) So... Newsboys, Audio Adrenaline, DC Talk, they're all literally all part of the same band now or have been at some point. So it's just all one big happy family. But to go back maybe seven minutes, speaking of rules, Tony. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really itching to see what this is. Yeah, well, we're talking about really the ultimate rule of life and faith, which is the scriptures. And just to back up, like just for a second, in case somebody's kind of joining us here midstream, which Actually, now that I say that out loud, I really dislike that metaphor or simile, but if somebody's just coming into what we've been doing, we've been doing a whole series about all kinds of theological matters. We are building, we're moving, we're growing in different types of topics. So we've talked about theology proper, we've talked about the Trinity, and so we're now finding ourselves really arriving in depth with the scriptures. 
And so go back and listen to all kinds of good stuff. If you're just jumping in now, this is not just like a one-off random episode on infallibility and errancy. We have a path that we're progressing towards and we're moving these stones in a particular direction and arranging them in such a way as to build kind of this major superstructure. So this is one of those stones, but really this is a great time to talk about this. Almost any time is a great time to talk about this because the question of authority is central for any worldview. And ours is a culture right now that wants to dismantle, deconstruct, pull down worldviews, and also pull down authority, and doing both those things to cataclysmic ends. And since Protestant theology has really located the authority in the Bible, the nature of biblical authority has been like a fundamental concern. That's why the Reformation really passed it to its heirs, right. this belief that the ultimate authority rests not in reason or a pope, but in an inspired scripture. So the two words most often used to express the nature of scriptural authority are inerrant and infallible. And so that is where we find ourselves. Yes. And now, you know, just to, just to maybe like back up and do a slight clarification on something we said now, I think two weeks ago, three weeks ago, when we did the episode on inspiration, obviously like all of these, these terms that we're talking about this week, in the inspiration week, next week when we talk about how the scripture is to be applied as the rule of faith and practice, all of these things are interrelated, right? The the authority of scripture comes from the fact that it's inspired and comes from God. The right. fact that it is infallible and inerrant, which we'll define those terms in a little bit here, that comes from the fact that its origin is the infallible and an un- unfailing, unerring God, right? The reason we can apply it in the, as the rule of faith and practice is because uh, it is authoritative and perfect because of who it comes from. So, so we shouldn't try to separate these things all all that right. much. We just kind of have to in order to do podcasts. So, try not to think of these as like really, really distinct, discrete things. We chop them up to make it easier to talk about them. Um, but in reality, all of this is a, it's like a three part episode where we just say the same thing over and over again for three hours in slightly different <laughs> ways, which is, I mean, that's like the nature of podcasting. Sure. The other thing I just want to point out, cause I went back and listened back to, uh, the episode and I said something that I want to clarify. I don't, I don't think I want to correct, but I want to clarify. I said during the episode that inspiration is something that applies to the author as they're writing the text. And, and what I meant by that, because there are some people that are going to take issue with that, rightfully so, the author, properly speaking, is not inspired. And, and when we say that, what, we, what we're hedging against is we're hedging against this idea that it was the apostles themselves that somehow were infallible. Right. Right. Paul could have written a grocery list and gotten it wrong. He's not infallible. He could have made a mistake in communicating. He even, as Protestants, at least most Protestants, he even could have made a mistake in teaching theology. And and that would be, we wouldn't have any challenges to our understanding of inspiration because of that. And we know that's the case because Peter made mistakes that we have recorded in the scripture in teaching theology. So we're trying, when we talk about the inspiration and we say that the authors are not inspired, what we're we're trying to hedge against is sort of this Roman Catholic idea where, where the apostles themselves right, have right. this sort of like power in their own person to produce authoritative infallible inspired text that they have some sort of like spiritual superpower to do this. That is not what we're saying. 
The reason I'm saying this is a clarification, not a correction, is because in a different sense, when we say that the, uh, the apostles were inspired to write the word of God, what we're saying is that in that particular act of writing those particular documents, the Holy Spirit was, as we talked about, was carrying them along or was driving them along, was superintending those works. So I just say that to, to say that because we're going to come up against some statements in some of the stuff we're going to look at tonight that might sound contradictory to what we said that time. And I want to get out in front of that. But this is a topic that I think it should be near and dear to to Protestant uh, Christians' hearts. And I think, unfortunately, because of some of the things Jesse was alluding to earlier about the nature of authority and what postmodernism has done in terms of uh, of rejecting any sort of authority you know I, it's funny i don't want to get too political but you know we're coming up on the anniversary of uh, the riot at the Capitol on on January 6th of 2021. And like that is a function of the same forces of rejecting and deconstructing authority that right. people who reject biblical authority or who reject the authority of their parents or who reject the authority of their pastors. That's the, It's the same philosophical movement that's driving all of those things. No longer can we look at the Constitution, which is relatively clear about how the certification process works and accept that even if we understand there are legal challenges to it. Instead, we're going to take it into our own hands and we're going to charge the capital and somehow force them not to do it. That's just not reality. So it's important in our cultural moment to recognize the nature of the scriptures as authoritative and as something that does not fail and does not let us down. And so I wanted to find these terms because these are terms that get tossed around in all sorts of different contexts. And it's important to understand what they do and don't mean in theological terms, because you can look up the word inerrant or infallible in a general dictionary. And sometimes you're going to see definitions that refer to biblical inerrancy that are under both infallible and inerrant. And that's that's a feature of a general dictionary not being specific enough. So when we talk about the scriptures being inerrant, what we're really saying is that in point of fact, in what the scriptures present, they are 100% fully truthful in everything they present as truthful. So when they re- re- when they report an event, they are truthful in how they report it. That doesn't necessarily mean they're 100% literal. There are all sorts of instances, and we'll, we'll get into some of this nitty gritty in a little bit here. There are instances where the scriptures intend to present an exaggerated version of an event. And we, right. we, we can see marks of how that works when we understand the genre and the literature and those things. That doesn't violate inerrancy. You know, when one account in Chronicles uses a, a round number and the same account in Kings uses a more specific number, that's not a violation of inerrancy. It'd be like if, if I asked Jesse how far it is to get from where I live to where he lives, and I said, oh, it's eight, eight or nine hours, depending on traffic. And he said, well, the last time I drove, this is exactly how many hours and minutes it took me. Neither one of us are saying something contradictory to the other, probably. So, so we can re- reconcile those kinds of things together. So inerrancy is the feature of scripture in which everything it presents positively as true is in fact factually true. So uh, that's important because now when we talk about infallibility, infallibility is a broader term. So infallibility doesn't just refer to the fact that the scripture does not actually err. 
it refers to the fact that the scripture cannot in any way fail to accomplish what it intends to accomplish. It's wholly true in everything it, it affirms. And so those two things are interrelated. They share a lot of overlap. But a lot of times the reason it's important to clarify this is a lot of times certain schools of theological thought, particularly on the more liberal side of things, will put forward this idea that like, well, the scriptures are infallible but they're not inerrant, meaning that like, well, they, they accomplish what they intend to do, but sometimes they do it even, you know, despite the fact that maybe they get some details wrong here and there. And we have to, as, as reformed Protestant Christians, we have to step back and go, that doesn't work. That's a, that's a logical incoherency. If the scripture intends to tell me that such and such an event happened, but it actually, in fact, that event didn't happen, then the scriptures fail to actually present the truth in that particular instance. And so they no longer are unfallible or infallible. They actually are failing in that instance. They're not longer inerrant. They actually have contain error. So we have to distinguish those two things in our minds at the very least and understand that if the scriptures truly are infallible, they necessarily are inerrant in everything they affirm as well. Uh, something could be inerrant and not infallible, right? When I write my name on a piece of paper, I spell it correctly. That that word combination of letters was written inerrantly, right? I inerrantly spelled, spelled my name on a piece of paper that I wrote it on today. It doesn't mean I could have failed or it doesn't mean that I right. I couldn't have failed, right? There are all sorts of times where like a slip of the pen happens and you realize like, oh, shoot, I just wrote a zero or an, an O instead of an A because I forgot the little tail, right? So, it, you know, there are times where we we errantly write something and then there are times where we inerrantly write something, but the fact that we could errantly write, it means we're not infallible. Does that distinction make sense? Is that clear enough? Right. I totally agree with you. I'm glad you brought that up early on because I think it's helpful, maybe instructive even to remind us that those two words, inerrant and infallible are basically on etymological grounds, they're approximately synonymous, synonymous, but they're used really differently. And what I find interesting is that I think some of this actually comes, or a lot of it comes out of the Reformation, the Sola Scriptura emphasis, and that you can trace the lineage back to this genesis of Roman Catholic theology, which was quick right. to say that the Bible is inerrant, but the word infallible is applied to the church, right. especially the teaching function of the Pope and magisterium. So since Protestants are going to reject the infallibility of both the Pope and the church, that word has been used increasingly of the scriptures. It is to do the two things you emphasize. They're the same, but also not exactly. So to me, like in a non-technical sense, the word inerrant means that something, and usually we're talking about a text, is without error. The word infallible in its lexical meaning is, like you said, technically a stronger word. And it means that the text right. is not only without error, but incapable of error. So the historic Christian teaching has been exactly this, that the Bible is both inerrant and infallible. And it is without error, that is inerrant, because it is impossible for it to have errors, Correct. which is infallible. Yeah. So those two things do come together. In a super financial nerdy way, there's two designations in finance. There's high quality earnings and high quality financial statements. And you'll always see people say high quality earnings presume high quality financial statements. In other words, how could you even know if the company is making a lot of money unless it's reporting it in a way that's actually discernible and trustworthy? So we're talking about the same thing here. So it might be helpful for people because you can sometimes see people deviate from this, especially online when they're making arguments about the Bible or they're trying to take away arguments about inerrancy. They're trying to somehow deconstruct that. And what you find is even well-intentioned Christians, they, they will basically cut off the limb they're standing on because right. they'll not realize that 
it, to me, it's almost like infallibility is like this essence, this content behind everything. If, if that is present, then we know that it's going to be inerrant. And of course, we can root this back to God's, God's character, biblical arguments, epistemological arguments, all things I'm sure we'll touch upon. But I'm glad that you did the distinction there. And again, I think it's appropriate and helpful to assess this and understand those two concepts in light of church history and what really has brought forth the need to emphasize these things. And of course, we're not saying anything that all of the reformers and so many brilliant people who are smarter than us that came before us are saying. Yeah. Yeah. So any discussion in Protestant circles, uh, particularly in the reform circles that we find ourselves in, uh, about inerrancy and infallibility has to give at at very least a head nod to the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy. Now, I, I um, I've been pretty clear in other venues that I think some of these sort of like extra ecclesiastical statements um, are not particularly helpful when they're written. Um, they're, they're usually unnecessary and they introduce confusion as far as what is an authoritative Christian document and what's not. That said, the theology of the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which was primarily drafted by R.C. Sproul late in a hotel room the night before the conference, um, is a very good work piece of theological uh, work. And so it, it goes through 19 different articles on various elements of what the the framers of this document, R.C. Sproul, and then later the people who would contribute modifications and then the signers would say is the definition what the what that group's statement is about uh, biblical inerrancy. This this statement has been adopted by all sorts of groups. The ETS, for example, the Evangelical Theological Society, uh, which uh, although I'm a part of, I I'm going to give it a little bit of criticism here. I don't think they actually hold their members to this, even though we all sign every year that we affirm this statement. There are all sorts of people in the ETS uh, who who sort of by their actions and what they write, deny this statement. But that said, even a lot of Christian groups, uh, church groups, ecclesiastical groups have adopted this statement as a faithful representation of what the Bible teaches about itself. Um, so we're not going to go through all of the articles. We're probably not going to go through any of the articles in any detail, but it, it would be really uh, remiss of us to not at least point you to that as a pretty reliable statement that explains this theology a little bit more in depth. Um, and it's it's from reliable commentators, right? This was a council or a council. It was like a committee that was formed with pastors from all over the world uh, right. to address an issue. And so they published this statement to respond to challenges uh, that were coming at the church in reference to what the what the church believed regarding the nature of scripture. So you can get it. Uh, I mean, if you just search Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy, you can find it just about anywhere. Particularly helpful if you're wanting to dig into it. Uh, R.C. Sproul had published um, prior to his death. He had published a set of these books uh, that were kind of like crucial questions books and the uh, entry on uh, what is the Bible is literally just the Chicago statement of on inerrancy along with some of his commentary on what each article means. It's extremely helpful. Um, it's kind of, kind of first level for any of these conversations. Um, and then of course our confessional doctrines, the, the Westminster, uh, confession has not a ton to say about this, but what it does say is pretty clear about this. So I just want to read a couple of the statements uh, out of uh, chapter one here. First, The first one is in um, section five. It says, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high end 
high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, uh, the many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. So all of that is saying the scripture manifests itself to be the word of God by all of these external characteristics that that Christians and non-Christians can both observe. Then it says, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So what that's saying is that the, the... the knowledge and appropriation of the reality of the infallible truth and divine authority of Scripture comes from the Holy Spirit. But this this statement in the confession is testifying to the fact that the Westminster divines believed the Scripture to be infallible, even right. though they're saying that's not you don't reach that conclusion by natural means. They're affirming that it is in fact infallible, and that's important because there there is this movement in some uh, some modern. Uh, modern Christian theologies to paint inerrancy and infallibility, inerrancy particularly, but infallibility and inerrancy as though it was some invention by the Princeton theologians right. in in like the late 1800s. You know, like, well, yeah, Warfield invented the doctrine of inerrancy. That just isn't the case. And then if you jump down to section nine of chapter one, it says the infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold, but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. So what that's saying is that not only is the scripture infallible, which they already affirmed up in section five, but it itself is also the only infallible interpreter of itself. And so this is taking uh, this is taking the infallibility of scripture and it's making it central. So not only do we affirm that the scriptures are wholly true in everything they teach and that incapable of presenting error, incapable of erring or failing to accomplish what God intends them to accomplish. But not only that, we loop back around and reinforce that by saying, and if you want to understand scripture, you just have to go back to scripture and apply scripture to itself. So I thought it's important to get those kind of confessional statements and, and sort of doctrinal statements out there because we have to ground this discussion, not in sort of like airy understandings of what we think infallibility means or what we think uh, it would mean for there to be error or not error, but in the in the historic testimony of the church. So across the board, Protestants have always believed, really until maybe like the last hundred years or so, have always believed that the scripture just doesn't present error. It's truthful. Right. It teaches it teaches the truth. It doesn't present error. Um, there's been debates and discussions at times about what the truth that's being presented is. Right. I mean, going all the way back to Augustine, there was debates about whether Genesis presented uh, really meant that God created in six days, or Augustine's position was he he created instantly and then used this analogy of six days to accommodate our understanding. Right. But nobody was saying that what the Scripture teaches is false. Nobody was saying that there was an error presented that that the Bible meant to say that this is what happened, but in fact, actually the opposite is what happened. That Nobody has said that. Nobody's argued that in the history of the church until maybe 100 years ago with kind of the advent of theological liberalism. Right. That's a good point. I, actually, we should unpack that a bit because I think it strikes me, maybe another way to come at this idea of inerrancy is that it's the view that when all the facts have become known, 
they will demonstrate that the Bible in its original autographs and correctly interpreted is entirely true and never false in all that it affirms. Whether that relates to doctrine or ethics or social, physical, like life sciences, the reason why I say it that way is because it automatically impounds in that kind of definition, the fact that we don't know all knowable things. So inerrancy, in some ways, it's not presently demonstrative. It's not presently demonstrable. So all, all absolute truth is self-referencing. It must, this, it must be this way because we're talking about something that is superintending. And so human knowledge, knowledge is limited in at least two ways I can think of. First, because of our finitude and sinfulness. So we're going to misinterpret data all the time, not just scriptural data, but any kind of data. For instance, wrong conclusions can be drawn from inscriptions or text. But second, we don't possess all the data that bear on the Bible. So some of that data may be lost forever, or they may be awaiting discovery by, you know, continue to find things by archaeologists, all the other like actual little details that people often point to and say, well, where is that thing? Or how can we never found that? By claiming that inerrancy will be shown to be true after all the facts are known, I think that's what we're recognizing. And that we're also recognizing that this is a higher source of truth. And we would expect it to be this way if it were, in fact, a higher source of truth, right? Right. So like the defender, I think, of inerrancy argues only that there will be no conflict in the end. So is this a statement of faith? Yes, but it must be so, right? Because we're saying that, I, I would say, I'm guessing you'd make the same thing. Some argue that the Bible doesn't make an, ex, an implicit claim to this kind of authority of itself. I would disagree with that. Yeah. And the only reason it can make that implicit claim, it does seem self-referencing. But that, again, if that, in other words, we could just narrow this down to saying like inerrancy and infallibility is the fact that God always tells the truth. The Bible is God's word. God tells us the truth about reality through the Bible, which is his word. And so we must trust his character. We must trust who he says he is and trust what the Bible says about itself in order to get there. But I think if you take any worldview you will find the same thing. It must self-reference at some point. So the question is, in whom are you putting your trust, right? So this idea that inerrancy can be known now or can be proven out now in its fullness must be false because we do not have the kind of intellectual capacity or superintending knowledge to actually support that. We'll actually find it in the end. Does that make sense? Like we're not, we're yeah. not stepping out like into the, I was going to say like in the water. We're not like going out like onto the seas here. <laughs> And, uh, you know, trusting in nothingness and vapor or something that's like totally ephemeral or enigmatic. What I think we're saying here, at least what I'm saying, is that it's sometimes helpful to know that we cannot know all things. We want to put our known faith, our known trust that God gives us by the power of the Holy Spirit into the scriptures fully. When we start to erode that because we're trying to accommodate human ability to reason logically and completely into something that we cannot do that with, then what we're doing is we're exchanging foolishness for the truth of what God gives us. And in some ways, this ability to trust in God as like a child to come to him in this way is to trust that he is the good father who has given us his good word and his good word is always true. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm trying to find it. Um, I, I don't remember off the top of my head where I find it. I think it's in that R.C. Sproul um, book, which which is called Can I Trust the Bible, which I said, again, is kind of a commentary on this. And he makes the point that, more or less, I'm paraphrasing here, but the, the idea is if we butt up against the Bible and there's something that we look at and we can't figure out how it's possible that the two statements uh, are correct, Right, we we have two statements in the scripture that we find they seem contradictory to each other. 
he makes the point that we should try we should try to harmonize those things when we can if there's a reasonable way to harmonize text we should but in in the final analysis to just use his his favorite phrase in history in the final analysis if we can't do that then there's two two things that are true one right. that's our problem that's not a problem with the scripture right 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 the scripture is true we we affirm because of what because of what we affirm about who gave us the scripture and how he gave us the scripture, then those contradictions are not actually contradictions. We may not ever understand it. We may not get to a satisfactory answer for that, but we, we affirm that to be true. And the second thing is that it will eventually be revealed to us, even if it's in the last day, even if it's in the new earth, how those things were, were true. So, so I think you're right that, that we need to, when we come to the Bible, I guess maybe this is the way I would go with it. We come from a culture that is sort of a hermeneutic of doubt. And what I mean by that is we we come to anything and any text, whether it's a whether it's the Bible, whether it's a Harry Potter book, whether it's a Marvel comic, you know, there's all these there's all these like YouTube videos that crop up about like the continuity errors in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Right. That's like a big deal. Well, it's because we come to this, we come to whatever it is with this hermeneutic of doubt or this hermeneutic of criticism where we stand in judgment over whatever this thing that we're, we're approaching is. And when we come to the scriptures, because of these previous prior commitments we have about the nature of scripture, because we are committed to the fact that the Bible is inerrant, that the Bible is infallible because it comes from God. We have to come to it and we have to suspend that hermeneutic of criticism, that hermeneutic of doubt. We don't stand in judgment over the Bible. The Bible stands in judgment over us. Right so on. if I if I look at the scripture and I say, this makes no sense, that's not a fault with the scripture. That's a fault with me. And the reason for that, theologically, the reason that's important is because if I come to the scripture— so let's take the continuity here, for example. If I come to a Marvel comic movie, right, and I say there's a continuity here, in this scene, Spider-Man says such and such a thing, and in this scene, he says something later, and those two things aren't true. The reason that I can say that and not lose my mind is because I just say, well, the authors, obviously, like the, the human writers of the story obviously just didn't get those ends connected correctly. There's a gap there. There's something they missed in their storyboarding. Well, if I come to the scriptures and I draw that same conclusion, the author is is God. So I'm saying, well, there's some gap in God's ability to make to right. harmonize things and to record things. You know, if if I come for ex- the example I used earlier, if I come to to Kings, I don't remember which one tends to use whole numbers and which one tends to use more specific numbers. But one of one of the two books tends to use more specific numbers and one tends to use more rounded numbers. And there are there are theological reasons for that. If I come to it and I say, well, in this one it says 99 and this one it says 100 because one's using specific numbers one's using rounded numbers and I go that's an absolute contradiction. What I'm really saying is God God is not powerful enough or wise enough or capable enough to actually have these two writers write the same number in reference to the same event. And that that's a statement that I don't think I think any Protestant any any evangelical born again Christian who is concerned with the fidelity of God's word would bristle at the idea that we're saying, well, God's not capable. But when we make statements where we imply that the biblical authors are at odds with each other, we re- what we really are doing is we're, we're making that statement and we just don't realize it. So I think it's important for us to recognize 
like I said earlier, all of these doctrines, all of these things flow together and they're all interdependent with each other. If I'm wanting to say that the scriptures truly came from God, it does not do any good for me then to say, well, then the scriptures might, but they might not be consistent. They may not, right. they might not. And, and this can be really subtle, right? It can be super subtle in that we, we argue that there's a development of doctrine across the, the scriptures such that the doctrine has changed in some way, maybe not, maybe not formally or explicitly, but when we argue that like, well, Paul's doctrine of salvation or Paul's doctrine of justification is different than James's doctrine of justification. I mean, that's like a really common example, but you, you might find similar things in like the gospels where one gospel writer, uh, an example that I'll, I'll throw out there because I think both sides of the conversation end up potentially being guilty of this is the debate about whether or not uh, divorce, uh, remarriage after divorce is permissible in cases of adultery, right? There's there's uh, a, the view that I believe is biblical that's represented in the Westminster Confession is that the Bible teaches that if uh, a one party of a marriage commits adultery, then that releases the other party to seek out a divorce and lawfully to be able to remarry after that. Uh, the there's a view called the permanence view, which would deny that they would say no. That even even in grounds for adultery or in, in divorce that's grounded in adultery, divorce is not permitted. So so any any remarriage after that is necessarily a sinful action. Well, both of the both of those parties go to the scriptures, and the most common way that this debate happens, I'm forgetting off the top of my head, I think it's Matthew that has the has the adultery clause, and Mark does not. Most commonly what happens is one party will go to the gospel that does not contain the adultery clause or does contain the adultery clause supporting their point. And, and then they go, but Matthew should inform how we read Mark or Mark should inform how we read Matthew. Well, right. we have to be really careful when we make those kinds of arguments, because if we're, if we're implying or stating that Mark is teaching some, Mark has Jesus teaching something different than Matthew has Jesus teaching, then we end up with these contradictions and these, these, uh, complications in our doctrine that imply that God God couldn't have superintended the scriptures in a way where things are consistent, or Jesus didn't teach in a consistent fashion. We have him teaching one thing over here to this group and one thing over here to this group. We see it when we talk about Paul. Well, Paul said here that marriage is, you know, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that like marriage is kind of a second best option. But everywhere else in the scripture, Paul seems to think that marriage is just a normative, regular experience of Christians. Well, we can't explain that difference in what we see by implying or stating that Paul's not 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 consistent with himself because then we're actually saying God's not consistent with himself. So right. I think I just think I give those examples because those are all examples that people will run into probably on a regular basis, not maybe even in their own study. Like you're doing a year through the Bible and you you know one day you're reading Galatians and then a couple, you know, maybe like a week later, two weeks later, you're reading James, you're going, what the heck? Is it justification by faith alone or not justification by faith alone? Well, we have to have some some framework to say the end result of however I understand these two things has to be that the single simple God who inspired this text is consistent with himself. Whatever right. that means, however I come out on the end of it, the answer can't be God has got this sort of schizophrenic doctrine going on. So I, I wanted to reinforce that because I think that's one of the real practical applications of this conversation. Right. I think that's fair. Or even those who would say, you can pull back on that a bit and say something like, well, we're see, we see two different gods in the Bible. There's the Old Testament God who is hard and exacting. And right. then there's the New Testament God in Jesus who is loving and open-armed. And 
I mean, even that is a manifestation in some right. ways of exactly what we're talking about here, which is you're making a statement about who God is and you may be doing it unwittingly and you may right. be doing damage to that by implying either in your own life or to others that there are some things here that are irreconcilable. And so that's, what's really interesting to me because again, to harp on this, like we will all choose our own absolute truth. Even we will make ourselves the absolute truth or the arbiter or the judge of right. all knowledge, or we will have to turn that over in our consciousness or subconsciousness to a higher authority, which in this case is a good God right. who's given us this role for life and faith. And so I'd rather have those kinds of discussions because I think at the very least, if we're saying, and, and don't get us wrong, I don't think, we're not saying that you can't have these kind of discussions. Like, what does James mean by this? Like, I right. see him saying this, and it does seem maybe to stand at odds with something else. To process that in a way that's loving while knowing that the scripture if you approach it with the rubric, like this is telling me the truth about reality. Right. So as you said, when I see these two things, it just means that I don't quite understand them yet or that I need, really need to ruminate or meditate on these things. Ask God to enlighten me to, to see what it is he's trying to teach me here. That I'm, I love that stuff. Actually, I'm totally down with that. What I, where I get frustrated is like the lame arguments about against like inerrancy and infallibility. Some of which like you already yeah. brought up, like, have you ever heard like, as if like, Inerrancy, like inerrancy does not preclude the use of ordinary language. Can we just right. get this out there? Yeah. So like, you know, an example of that is like where the Bible speaks of the sun rising. Like, of course we know that the sun does not rise at all, right. but that the earth rotates around the sun. We all get that. But this is a common way of expressing what we understand to be day and night falling. And that's what we use to explain that. That doesn't mean the Bible is incorrect then because it used this language. Right. Um, or in the same way you talked about the numbers that comes up a lot is this idea of like, you know, well, are you telling me it was exactly 30,000? Like, no, in the same way, like if you went to a concert, hopefully not now. And you were like, how many people were there? And you're like, I don't know, like 10,000. Like right. that's a suitable answer because you're, you're trying to give, um, some context. The other one that always gets me, I don't know if you ever hear this is I would say like inerrancy doesn't preclude the use of loose or free quotations. Yes. So for in our culture and sometimes for good reason, like the unbearable sin is to misquote or misappropriate what somebody else said. But the Bible is inerrant if it accurately and truthfully describes the content of what a speaker said. So whether like the actual words Jesus spoke are, I am the way, the truth and the life, or I am the truth, the way and the life, the Bible is still inerrant how it transcribed these words for the content remains intact. Right. So Again, what we're after here is that the Bible is just telling us the truth. I see like these, these, I call them lame because somebody will say, well, like you said, use, this says 10,000, this says 10,200, or the Bible is using uh, strange grammatical constructions as if like, you know, the writers write in different ways, but if they're all carried along by this Holy Spirit, it's the carrying, like you said earlier, the superintending right. will of God. That is what stands above and over everything and shapes everything. So there's going to be different grammatical constructions. Like that's also super interesting because these are different people. You got right. shepherds and kings and, but it also means the last thing I'll say, and then I'll go off my soapbox of like lame arguments is like, I've sometimes heard the argument, well, this character said that and it's not true. So therefore the Bible isn't inerrant. So an example might be, uh, I was reading recently when Solomon is describing how, and this is kind of a strange thing, but when he's describing why his father, David didn't build the temple, <laughs> he says, well, it's because like he was surrounded by war on every side. Basically right. his implication is like, he couldn't get around to it because it's hard to like throw your spirit people and also build a building at the same time. And, and, you know, if you just go a couple chapters earlier, you know, the God says you're, you're a man of war. You have too much blood in your hands, right. probably related more to things that happen with your eye than anybody else. But 
you might look at that and be like, well, he got it wrong. It's in the Bible. So there's incorrect. But, but people are saying things all the time that are incorrect in the scriptures, but they are still true in the sense of that's what they said in the context right. of the story. So even when, when this, the Satan comes before, or the snake comes before Eve and says like, you know, did God really say you can't eat of everything? And she messes up the rule. You know, that, that doesn't invalidate the inerrancy of the scriptures. So I hear that argument a lot, like as yeah. if like the Bible is telling us the truth about what happened. It's actually full of characters whom God comes to redeem and he shows them in all their ugliness, including when they say things that are wrong, either by intention or not. Yeah. And that is what you'd expect again from a truth teller, that they would yeah. be telling you everything that's actually occurring, not shifting or changing the narrative or sugarcoating or putting varnish on stuff. What you find is the Bible is almost, can I, I want to say like too inerrant, but like almost too transparent. Yeah. You know, like when we all meet Peter, we're, I assume we're going to say things like, did you really messed up yeah. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of times? He's going to be like, really? That's, that's all the stuff you want to talk to me about? <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, like how is it, how is it to stare down the face of God and hear him say, get behind me, Satan? Like, how, how does that work for you? <laughs> How'd that feel? You know, yeah. So, so you know what I'm saying here? I don't mean yeah. to like harp on this too much, but I think that there are, there, if you want to have a reasonable discussion about, I hate to use the word reconciling, but talking about, let's say challenging or uh, like superficially challenging theological principles that cause us to reason through what it means when God says that he's come to save all or trying to understand how James and Paul fit together in their understanding, which I think most of the time are just two sides of the same coin or again, a jewel that we turn over in our hands and see from various angles. That's one cohesive whole, but it's the reflection and the refracting of that light that is beautiful in the contrarieties that bring together a consummate harmony. That's one thing. But to talk about these things, you know, like, oh, well, the Bible says the sun rose. Yeah. We know the sun doesn't rise. Yeah. I want to be like, stop it. Good day to you. Yeah. Good day, sir. Yeah. And, you know, we, we have to be careful, too, in how we explain those things, too, right? So so that's a good example because we can explain that in, in a couple different ways. We, we could say that um, Moses was writing that way. I mean, I don't, I can't think of a specific instance where Moses said that the sun rose, but I'm sure it's there. So we can say Moses is, is saying that the sun is rising because Moses actually thought that the sun was was moving across the sky. We, we can say that in a way, if we use that to explain why the Bible isn't errant in, in, in that statement, right? We say, well, it's not errant because the original author that's how they understood the universe. So they was accurately presenting what the author believed the universe be saying. That's actually saying that the Bible is errant because the author, the author incorrectly, incorrectly attributed the motion of the sun across the sky. There are a lot of people that use that, that kind of explanation to explain why the Bible actually isn't inerrant uh, in, in that, you know, it was, it was actually not inerrant because the author thought that's the way it was. That's the wrong way to do it, right? So, so it's complicated, right? Because Moses probably did think that the sky, the sun was moving across the sky. I mean, I, I guess like maybe Moses had direct revelation from God and God explained, well, actually, no, this is the way it works. We don't have any biblical reason to think that. So we have to be careful in how we put forward those explanations. And, and the language you're talking about is phenomenological language, right? Moses was writing right. from the perspective of how things appeared. 
right? Whether or not he actually thought that that was the mechanism that, that was there is almost irrelevant in some ways. But we have to be careful as we're explaining these things not to actually in, impose error on the text in our effort to preserve inerrancy. And it's right easy to do, right? The, the first, this is something that I think is classically done in the first chapter of Genesis is when you're talking about the firmament in the sky, there's an appeal made that says like, well, God is communicating to an ancient Near Eastern culture and the ancient Near Eastern culture had this idea that the world was a disc and that there was this dome over the disc. And that's, that's what he's talking about. And so because he's communicating to that culture, he's using this language, he's portraying the cosmos in a particular way. There's a nuanced way that you can explain that and mean something roughly like that and not be saying, but so actually God just lied to the people. Right. right? Exactly. That Because I actually believe God was using accommodated, accommodated language. I think he was, he was saying there is this physical thing in the sky in the same way that he tells us he has arms or that he has feathers or that he snorts like a bull when he's mad, right? There's this accommodated way that he's talking about the creation of the universe because we can't get our heads around the idea of what it means from, for something to come from nothing or what it means to separate the waters above from the waters below when there aren't any waters above because it's space, right? We, we, we don't have words to describe that. So God has to accommodate that. That's very different than saying, God knew that the culture was this backwater culture that had no idea how the how the universe was constructed and so he just he just played along with their errant understanding of the cosmos in order for the, the Bible to make sense to them. I've heard both of those things done. The former way of of explaining carefully that the Bible has to accommodate itself. God has to accommodate himself to human language. And so when he accommodates himself to human language and therefore has to present things of non-human reality in human ways, he doesn't do so properly. He does so improperly. He has to do that right. analogically. That's not the same as just saying like, well, God, God just used the wrong conventions of the culture to communicate. And so we have to reappropriate that. That's the difference between something like what I would be saying when I was explaining Genesis one and something like the Bible project or Michael Heiser would be saying, they're saying like, well, this is the ancient Near Eastern culture. So right. God, God used the incorrect conventions of the ancient Near Eastern culture to communicate something. That's not what the biblical orthodox position on how the scripture communicates is, right? When John Calvin, this is a famous thing people bring out. John Calvin, I think it's in his, I think it's in his commentary on Genesis, but it also might be the Institutes. He says like Moses wasn't an astronomer, and so when we're looking at the uh, the creation account or when we're looking at various things in in the Pentateuch where it's making commentary on things and celestial activities, he's saying like the point wasn't to teach astronomy. And so we have to understand that. That is not to say that Calvin believed that Moses was presenting inaccurate information. Right. It's just to say, like, we shouldn't go to a book that's not intending to teach astronomy to teach astronomy. So we have to be careful because our, our own attempts to defend the Bible often end up undercutting the Bible itself. And so we have to be really, really cautious and intentional how we do that. And this is why I, this is part of why I started with that quote from, uh, from the confession that says like the scripture is the infallible interpreter of scripture. When we want to defend the scriptures to, to just steal from Spurgeon, we don't need to do much except to just let the scriptures defend itself. Right. The, the, the other element of that quote that I started with 
We're not going to convince someone that the scriptures are infallible. We can't do that. That's the Holy Spirit's job. So we we should do our best, and this this is why R.C. Sproul, I think it was R.C. Sproul, said, we should do our best to present winsome, convincing, and reasonable harmonizations of the scripture, right? When we go to the uh, the last words of Jesus on the cross are a good example. If you read those as very strict chronological accounts, they don't they don't work together. But there's one of the gospels says he cried out with a loud cry, and the other one has his last words being a specific statement that he cried out. Well, it's it's reasonable to say. Well, one gospel is generalizing and saying a loud cry. The other one tells us the content of that loud cry. That's a reasonable harmonization. There are a lot of unreasonable harmonizations that people try to go at. That actually doesn't help. So we should try to do that. But at the end of the day, we should not be overly invested, in my opinion. Maybe Jesse disagrees with me. I don't think we should be overly invested in trying to defend the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible because the Bible is the authority. And so right. if we we have to recognize at a certain level, I used to get into this argument all the time. I used to be in this apologetics Facebook group called the Christian Apologetics Alliance. And I used to get into this argument all the time because people would be coming into the group and they would be saying things like, well, I got I to gotta prove, I got a debate coming up uh, to demonstrate that the Bible is infallible. So give me all your best proofs that the Bible is infallible. And people would start throwing out things about the, you know, Job talks about the circulatory system and the currents right. under the ocean and look how much it predicted this. And they throw out all these like individual points where the Bible seems to get reality right. And I would constantly come back to it and say, your best bet in a debate, a debate like this is to actually appeal to the origin of the scriptures. If you can get your opponent or your interlocutor or whoever you're talking to, to concede that the scriptures came from God then you're already there because now all you got to do is prove that God's not the kind of God that's going to give us inaccurate information. Right. So I, I think we just have to be careful. Yes, I want to say we should defend inerrancy. We should should argue for inerrancy and infallibility. We should articulate our reasons for believing it. Even the confessional document says there's, there's this whole list of things that we can appeal to. The majesty of Scripture, the consistency of Scripture, the scope of Scripture, all these things are evidences to show that the scripture is the word of God and is infallible. But at the end of the day, it's the Holy Spirit who convinces us through the word, right? right. By the word and spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that convinces us by using the scripture that the scripture is in fact an infallible authority and truth. So I, I, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure how to wrap this up to be honest with you, because it is one of those topics that we we could just continue to talk about. We could continue to reiterate how important it is because the Bible is the revelation of God to us. It's the revelation of God for us. And so we have to understand that as a central feature of Christianity. So even though, even though I, on a certain level, I want to kind of affirm with Andy Stanley that our faith is not in the Bible, our faith is in Jesus Christ, but we would not know Jesus Christ apart from the revelation of the scripture. And right. so even though we, we don't worship the Bible, we don't, we don't believe that the Bible is salvation, Right, it was Jesus said to the Pharisees, "You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have life, but but they miss the fact that the Scriptures are testifying to Christ, who is the one who gives life through the Scriptures." Nevertheless, the Scriptures still are, in large part, the way that we appropriate Christ to ourselves. The way that the Holy Spirit appropriates Christ to us is by building faith in us through the preaching of the Scriptures. So it's important and central for us as Christians to understand the nature of Scripture and the importance of it, and and how it is that God communicates to us through it. 
Right on. I think that's a helpful landing spot. It's good for all of us to remember that we can't superimpose these kind of expectations for even general appreciation or complete fidelity to the scriptures on the unbeliever. Because even that, the ability to see that this is authoritatively the word of God comes by way of the spirit. And of course, like you said, the beauty is that the spirit uses the word itself to illuminate and to enlighten because it comes from the father. And it has been lived out by the Son and then applied to us through the Holy Spirit. All of that comes from the regenerated heart. It doesn't come from logic. It's not going to come from sitting down and being able to expressly, you know, cleanly articulate all these points and stack up an argument that can't be knocked down. Really, that is vouchsafed to God himself, and it is his word. So I think the encouragement here, I hope, is that if, uh, to pull us all back in the scriptures, right? Like if we really believe this thing, we really believe it's inerrant and infallible, that it tells the truth about reality. And that's from a loving father who is concerned with giving us the truth and then giving us the right kind of knowledge, like sufficient knowledge for this life, uh, then it should really drive us right back into it. Yeah. We probably all underemphasize it, underuse it, underappreciate it. And so... To give the full the full quote, as I understand it from Spurgeon, Scripture is like a lion. Whoever heard of defending a lion, just turn it loose. It will defend itself. Yeah. Yeah. There's no better way to end it. Oh, Charles. Oh, Charles. <laughs> O-C-H. So everybody who's listening, make sure you go out to the reformbrotherhood.com website. Enroll yourself in the new contest. You want a book. You definitely want a book. It's, what was the title of the book again? I don't remember. Divine Missions, a handbook. <laughs> and we just talked about Divine Missions. So like, we did. I feel like Adonis is like, he's just trying to emphasize what we've been talking about. Like, I really appreciate that he was like, you know what? That's a really good idea to talk about that. <laughs> Let me just jump on that bandwagon and write this book real she quick. He wrote a book and published it over the course of a month. <laughs> yeah. He could do that. I, I feel like if, if he was... I mean, Adonis is amazing, but if he was able to do that, then he, he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be, I don't know what he wouldn't be. He wouldn't be something. <laughs> I don't know how to finish that sentence without being offensive know. to somebody. Listen, that's what everybody comes here for is any kind of sentence that starts with, I don't know how to end this without being offensive <laughs> to somebody. I feel like that could be the new motto of our podcast, the Reform Brotherhood. We don't know how to end this. <laughs> It is. It's happening right now. I don't know if people can feel it, but but it's happening. So with that said, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Brotherhood.